Welcome to Tad Dickel's Leadership and Strategy Podcast, bringing you authentic conversations with leaders about their approach to leadership and their organization's strategy for success. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Strategy Podcast. This is your host, Tad Dickel. This uh, is a special episode. Not many of us have the opportunity to interview our loved ones, and so today I have my father, Dr. Tim Dickel, with us today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by just telling us about your background? Well, currently I am a retired individual. I spent uh, 43 and a half years teaching and and in administrative roles at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Prior to that, I was a mental health therapist, child development specialist for a county school district in Northeastern Oregon. And prior to that, a graduate student at Indiana University where I got a master's and doctorate. Prior to that, undergraduate, majored in psychology. Had to go to graduate school to find somewhere to be employed and uh, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Great. Thank you, Dad. You know, what I was saying about that this is kind of a special opportunity is because many of us probably wish we had uh, recorded conversations or even video of uh, more serious conversations and uh, interactions with some of our loved ones. So thank you for, uh, for being on the episode today. Wanted to talk a little bit about leadership, and you come to leadership mainly through your experiences in higher education, but what would you say are some of the things that influenced your, your thoughts or approach to leadership? I don't know when I started consciously thinking about leadership. I must have had some attributes as a leader. I was student council president in my grade school and in my high school. Um, they didn't have that kind of student government at the college where I went. I fell in love with higher education when I was an undergraduate and decided that I wanted to be a dean of students. And so I got a master's degree in counseling and and I was going to get a doctorate in administrative higher education, but decided against it for some strange reason that eludes me now. I guess as I started reading about leadership, it's to me, it, a leader is someone who brings special skills, talents, insights to a problem situation and enables that problem situation to get solved. Uh, so as a leader, I've always had in mind, what's, what's the problem here? What's the conflict? What are the opportunities for change that exist in an organization? And then I tried to work to solve those or resolve those. My first higher ed leadership was at Creighton as assistant to the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. We had a dean who believed in developing new leaders within the faculty and had a, an internship program, essentially, for two years in his office. And I got accepted into that, which gave me some insights, not enough, however. And then two years were over, and I went back to to full-time teaching. But then five years later, the dean had resigned, and there was an opportunity for me to apply to be dean. I applied to be dean, was not chosen, but the new dean saw that I had some experience and asked me to be his associate dean. I had some ideas about how things should change and develop. But I think one of the situations with leadership for me is what, what's the structure that will enable a leader to succeed? And what's the structure that will impede any kind of success? And in the structure that I was operating in, um, it was very hierarchical and most of what I thought were good ideas 
were not necessarily perceived as great ideas by the people above me. Too risky, um, did not according to the way they were thinking, etc. So um, I, I still believe a, a, a good leader is somebody who has skills, talents, insights, whatever, that can resolve a situation that the organization's in. But the organization has to be willing to accept those ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine in higher education, you have some unique challenges related to leadership because sometimes you have probably people that that report to you that may have tenure, that may have other things that make it a little more challenging to lead. It's You, you can't lead with necessarily a, an authoritarian approach. So... What were what were some like lessons that you had in terms of trying to probably influence change more more so than like the probably a traditional command and control approach? Well, having never been in the military, I'm not steeped in in an authoritarian <laughs> tradition. The the place where I I think I had the most influence and probably the most challenges. Was, was the time that I spent as chair of the education department at Creighton. I inherited a department. I'd been in the department. I was the youngest person in the department for about 11 years, 12, no, 19 years. And then all of a sudden I was the chair. I became chair because the, my predecessor had resigned retired, actually, after we failed national accreditation. The dean, the vice president, the president all said to me, clean it up. You got 18 months. They're coming back. I was still the youngest person in the department in terms of seniority and actually chronological age. The challenge for me was to move a faculty who were older, firmly entrenched, loved the way that things were operating under the previous chair, and they didn't want to change. So my first task was to change the incentive system. I'm, I'm a behaviorist. I'm a psych undergraduate who, whose mentor was a very strict Skinnerian, and I believe most of us operate based on rewards and, and sometimes punishments. So the first thing that I did was to change the structure, the administrative structure or the organizational structure within the department and to change the criteria that we were going to use for annual evaluations. I didn't quite anticipate what was going to happen. The majority of the faculty resigned <laughs> right, right after I became chair, which has its distinct advantages but also has some disadvantages. The dean was firmly behind me and was was willing to let me hire ahead. So I had new, fresh individuals who were um, willing to cooperate with me. Uh, I I can say that we we got reaccredited, but it was a matter of the freedom that I had to restructure. And, And I really believe that Getting people to operate effectively was, in this situation, about changing the rewards and also bringing in some new people quickly who were, I hate to use the word my people, but people that I had hired and, and had a loyalty to me. Right. Well, I think I think one of the challenges is when you have, when you take over a leadership role, leading people who are used to the previous leader, I think that can be really challenging. And so, but this makes me think almost of the Cotter change management process, where uh, he talks about the first step to creating change is to create urgency for change. Which it sounds like there was urgent. Yes, we we had eighteen months to clean it up to get a new accreditation report, restructure the curriculum, do a whole lot of things that had been neglected uh, under the previous two chairs, actually. So 
Yeah. So you have this this this, this need to create urgency. Uh, then you have like build a guiding team or coalition, which it, it sounds like you worked on. But um, I, I think that's one of the challenges with change. I talk to leaders a lot who are who get frustrated in a situation because they can't change things, but often they haven't um, necessarily explained why the change is needed. The good thing with the situation you had was a pretty you had a pretty clear why, and then it was you had to build a team, and then you had to create the vision for where you're going. Yeah, well, the accrediting body sort of created that vision for me, but, but yeah, it was, it was about that. It was about doing things differently. And, you know, I, I feel fortunate that the older crew, all of who, whom were over 65 and the oldest was 75, they decided it was time to quit. I never really talked to any of them about what really was their reason but I, I created the time to change. Right. Some of them didn't speak to me again, but you know, my job, as I saw it, was to get us reaccredited to establish renewed credibility for, for the educational program. Sure. Well, that's, that's one of the challenges in leadership is you know, thinking about the needs of the organization versus the needs of the individual on the team. Right. And, and sometimes you have to make those decisions that people don't like, but ultimately are what's best for the organization. Yes. Yes. Now, but, but that leads me to the next job that I had. I, I hated the accreditation so much, the process that once we got it, my three year term was over um, as chair of the department and I was looking for any way out so that I wouldn't have to be chair for another term. So I was recruited at Creighton, same place, to be dean of university college and summer sessions, essentially our adult continuing ed and summer programs. I came in that to that position fundamentally as an entrepreneur. I commit heresy sometimes in the presence of my higher ed friends by saying, Higher ed is a business. We are a business. We are, in fact, a manufacturing plant with machinery called faculty. And we have certain capabilities in terms of manufacturing capacity. When that capacity is not being used in certain areas, to me, it makes sense to market it beyond our traditional boundaries and to make sure that we have students for the faculty to teach. That wasn't consistent with the next higher le- two higher levels, vice president and president, with their, their perception of, of what we should be doing. So my efforts to change the system, to make us a viable force in terms of adult education in the community, were not received very well. I was very frustrated. And I think that's another challenge in leadership. I, I had the vision, but the people who really got to authorize it or approve it didn't have that same vision. And I lasted four years in that position. Being someone who's got a mental health background, I gained about 20 pounds. I was eating my frustrations. And rather than stay in the job, I resigned and went back to, to teaching. Mm-hmm. I lost the 20 pounds. Right. And it sounds like when the vision of the university or the vision of the organization, higher, yeah, higher organization didn't align with yours, it just, you had to make a decision. You either align with it or you decide it's not the right place for you. Well, and, and you, you said earlier something about the frustrations of tenure. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was very advantageous. I had tenure. I could go back to my previous position and experience the joy of teaching again, mm-hmm. and that was that was fine. Mm-hmm. Great. Who would you? So, if you were to think about on your career, those leaders who have been maybe most effective or most 
influential? Are, are there names or people that come to mind that you think of, and and what did they, what did they do that made them so effective? Well, I'll, I'll limit it to people I've had sp- specific contact with mm-hmm. in my career at Creighton. The president that I knew best, a guy named Mike Morrison, Jesuit priest, kind of an old shoe. His leadership style, or I, he never said it to me specifically, but his 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 goal was to keep the the boat afloat, mm-hmm. and he did that very well for for nineteen years. His successor, another Jesuit named John Schlegel, John Schlegel was a builder. John turned the appearance of the university, actual visual appearance of the university, into something that it hadn't been. Uh, Morrison, as they say, kept it afloat. Everything's fine as is. All we need are lots of students. Schlegel said, no, we need to compete with other colleges and universities by changing what people see when they visit Creighton. So there was a lot of building, creation of a new front door, which was a building but it had admissions. It was quite a, it's quite an elaborate building. Had admissions, financial aid, so it's where prospective students came for stop. The next president didn't do much and didn't stay very long. And the current president, I admire his vision for, again, visibility. I think that's the name of the game, at least by presidents and, and higher administration within the institution believe it's, it's all about what it looks like, first appearances, etc. So the current president is really making over the campus into something visually very appealing. So I, I, each, each individual, I think, was appropriate for the times. Again, going back to what do they bring that the institution needs? And, and so far, they've delivered. Mm-hmm. And I think leading with our strengths is, is key. And I think it, it made me wonder if certain leaders are better for different types of settings or, or different situations or different current states of, of organizations like I think sometimes there are there are some leaders who are very comfortable maintaining and maybe optimizing what's already there. Right. So yeah, keeping the boat afloat. Right. It, but then I think there are some that would be very bored or would not enjoy that type of work. They want to be doing something new all the time and. Um, Sometimes I think it's important for leaders to find the the right fit of a, a of an organization and their the organization's needs, the leaders' skill sets, and make sure that they really are a good fit. Because those who want to build, who want to take on new opportunities, are going to be very frustrated in an organization that really needs to optimize and just kind of maintain the current current programs, current uh, services, current offerings versus, you know, taking on an organization that really needs to go to the next level and maybe is just not able, you know, just needs that leader or that that person, the catalyst or if you will, to take them there. Well, and going back to my situation, I mean, I think you have to look at, I'll own it. And for, for my situation, I was much more focused on getting out of a job, department chair, accreditation, that sort of thing, than I was on what's it going to be like in the position that I really was recruited to, to fill. If I had it to do again, I would spend more time scrutinizing those above me in terms of what do they find acceptable in the dreams, goals, et cetera, that I have? Mm-hmm. And what can they live with? And what are they willing to approve? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of positions, but it would seem to be appropriate for anybody who wants to be a leader 
to thoroughly understand the structure into which they're the structure they're entering mm-hmm. to make sure that they don't get frustrated and don't gain twenty pounds or don't don't burn out in a situation that's incompatible with their goals and 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 talents. Mm-hmm. There almost needs to be a vetting process on both sides to decide is this Absolutely. the right leader for us and for that leader to say is this the right opportunity for me right now. As I've I've watched recently. I'm still fascinated with higher education. On the local scene, the University of Nebraska, the president has just resigned to become president at Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. They're beginning to have interviews, essentially public forums to talk about what what do we need, which is a whole lot different than anything that I ever experienced. I applied to be dean of the College of Arts and Sciences twice at Creighton. I don't think the process was very sophisticated in retrospect. It was intimidating, but not very sophisticated in terms of the faculty and maybe the higher administration identifying, here's what the president needs to be doing, or not president, the dean. Um, I'm going back to the president of the University of Nebraska. The Board of Regents set up criteria for evaluating him. And it was very specific in terms of what he needed to accomplish in order to be satisfactorily uh, evaluated. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think structures have changed. Mm-hmm. It's just not, you're just not hiring a superstar. You're hiring somebody that can get things done mm-hmm. and whose beliefs about getting those done are, are compatible with the organization. Sure. Yeah. Now, your background is in mental health. Your father, my grandfather, was a psychiatrist. How would you say that that background has influenced how you led and how you perceive leadership? I've not thought about that question. Mental health-wise, I want everybody that has ever worked for me to feel good about themselves to feel like they accomplished something. And then my behavior, behaviorist background, I like goals. I like accomplishments. There's nothing better than a job done. Sometimes I use the expression, all's well that ends, but it better end well. I, I think my father was an encourager, certainly with me. I have the luxury of being an only child, so I, he didn't have to in, divide or his encouragement across lots of individuals outside of the house. I worry about burnout. Mm. So when I look at tasks and I look at individuals doing tasks, I'm constantly aware of what demands are being placed on them. Mm -hmm. That was something that came out early in my training and, and actually my first job. I burned out working for a county school district. I served eight schools a week, plus I had a load at the mental health clinic. Plus, I had staffing, and the staffing was 30 miles away from where I was working. So I learned about burnout early. I think there's some positions that are prone to burnout. Mm -hmm. Little accomplishment and more and more demands. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. Higher ed has tended to be relaxed in the past. I think it's become much more quantified. How many publications? What are your teaching evaluations like? How much service are you doing? Da 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 da. And again, publications, books, whatever are really important, uh, especially in an environment where it's also about being on the job, serving the institution, being visible. Very different than the tradition that I entered, but it changed while I was there. Sure. So, as you say, burnout. And I guess I have some emphasis, too, on how do people take care of themselves? Is, is the job the job, and that's it in your life? Or can, are, there, are there opportunities, hopefully every day, where you can detach from your job? Mm-hmm. I, I had a young man come to me once. He was taking a course in careers in psychology, and he... 
he said to me, how many hours a week do you work? And I, I said, I don't know how to answer that question because I'm not sure what work is. And he said, I don't understand. And I said, well, this morning I went for a run and thought about what I was going to do in class today. Was I working? I teach child and adolescent development. I teach de- adult development. I went to sleep last night, but reading a, a biography of someone, which is about their development. Was I working? I don't know. I, it's, that's a hard question to answer uh, in terms of my mental health, inf- uh, the influence of training in mental health and experience. But I think it's about burnout. I think it's about a sensitivity to the nature of jobs. Uh, I was reading about a CEO, I want to say, of Southwest Airlines. He was brought in from the outside and never spent any time with the employees, trying to understand their various routines, the demands of their jobs. And as I understand it, one of the things other than maybe pilot people for Southwest move to different positions, whether it's, I don't don't know, carrying luggage, working at the ticket counter. And that's when Southwest had a major crisis in the last two or three years. Whereas the new CEO and the previous, not the one that was in the middle of the crisis, but the one that preceded him, they all mix and mingle with the employees. They know what they're doing. They know what the job demands are. And I think maybe that's, if you're going to, if you're going to have a sensitivity to mental health, you better understand what the jobs are that Mm -hmm. employees have. Right. There's a common issue with, with some leaders that get almost too isolated. And I know the, the old saying, it's lonely at the top. There's, there's truth in that. One of the things I think is really important for leaders to do is to be in touch on some level with their frontline workers. And often when we develop strategy, strategy is only developed from like the C-suite or the executive team. And especially right now where we have tight labor market, it's probably even more important to be in touch with our frontline workers and to understand their experiences because often they're the ones delivering the product. They're the ones creating the product. They're the one delivering the services. And creating the image for the company. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I always thought it was strange for all kinds of organizations, but the lowest paid people are the front line, mm-hmm. which have the least invested, maybe, mm-hmm. um, which seems counterproductive. Sure. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree with that. It, it reminds me of my, my experience this past weekend at a, at a grocery store and the, I was trying to get some help and the, the cashier sends me to the service desk and this, I'm standing at the service desk. Nobody's there. Somebody walks up to me, an employee at the store and said, we're closed. And I said, oh, I, I didn't realize that. She said, can't you read the sign? And I thought, you know, that is a lasting impression of that of that store. And that often that, you know, we think these employees are, are, we can replace them, that there's, you know, they're interchangeable, that they're just widgets, uh, essentially, uh, really have an impact on the customers that are being served. Well, and as I think about administrative structure, organizational structure, I think today, I've heard a phrase recently, senior leadership used um, within higher education and how isolated they are. I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of who does a CEO talk to? Who provides input to that individual? At a Jesuit institution, traditionally the president has been a Jesuit. He lives with the Jesuits. He dines with the Jesuits. Who are his friends and who provide really candid, open, honest information, feedback, et cetera. But likewise, when you have a senior leadership team, what are their opportunities to interact with the rank and file? Is it at meetings where essentially there's a top-down informing and then there's a reception, which 
you know, feeds bellies, but may may not give the rank and file an individual real access to the to the CEO. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a serious disadvantage in an organization. Sure. Yeah, I I wrote a blog one point about insulated leaders, and I know one of the things that I thought about a lot in leadership roles has been. I've thought a lot about like when somebody comes to talk to me, is what I'm hearing really the truth? Is that an accurate depiction of what is going on? And and one of the things as a leader we have to be careful about is making sure we're listening to the right people, making sure the people we're hearing represent an accurate depiction or the 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 big picture. Um, and, and I think that that needs to take it takes a leader intentional effort to really continue to be attuned to the organization rather than being insulated. This, this brings up a, a experience I had maybe 15 or so years ago, a former student of mine asked me to write a letter of recommendation for him for a job to head a national organization. Most many people would have heard of it. I'm going to keep it anonymous. And he got the job. And then he said, what should my first act be? And I said, you should hire your own administrative assistant because you have a lot of people in your organization who have gained a lot of power. And they're not going to easily be willing to yield that power and authority to a new guy. And you need someone that's your person right by your side to, to filter that out and, and somebody you know that's on your team rather than their own self-centered, that somebody who's on their own self-centered team. Right, right. Right, and, and really encouraging that person and ultimately the people around them to tell you the truth, whether it's right. easy, you know, whether it's easy or hard to do. I remember... Uh, in 1986, Father Morrison, the president of the university, asked me to represent the university to the NCAA and the Missouri Valley Conference. It's a role called the faculty athletics representative. And the custom then was each year the NCAA would have a meeting and they would act on legislation that was proposed. We had the legislation ahead of time and we'd sit down with the president, the athletic director, and talk about how the university was going to vote. I had the vote. Mm -hmm. That was a strange experience for me. It took me a little while, minutes, but a little while. I'm going, shoot, I'm just this lowly faculty member. Here's this, he was a a large man, a large presence, period, but he's the president of the university. How can what I have to say and have any meaning? And then I thought, wait a minute, he asked me, I'm going to tell him I'm going to be honest. If he doesn't, well, again, going back to tenure, I have nothing to lose. I can go back and teach and not be. Um, he was very, very accepting of my opinions, which I'm grateful for. The, the structure of the NCAA changed, so they didn't do that in, after a certain point. Mm-hmm. But I think any time a CEO asks you, you tell him. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I worry about in the structure at Creighton is the president, he's a Jesuit, but he doesn't, he lives in his own accommodation separate from the Jesuit community. It's a situation, I don't know who he talks to, who his friends are, who advises. Often a Jesuit is chosen as president because they have a collar and they may not have had any administrative experience or very little administrative experience. And they're they're learning on the job, and that's can be okay. Sure, can be scary too. Right. What are your What are your thoughts about when I was growing up? You being in higher ed, it was just a given that I was going to go to college. And now I saw a, a statistic that I think it's I think like forty five percent of millennials question the value of a college education which is, you know, that number has grown over the years. What, what are your thoughts about that statistic and the value of higher education moving forward? 
you're asking me to commit heresy, probably. I think it largely depends on what kind of education you're going to get after high school. I went to a small liberal arts college. I got an excellent liberal arts education, and I had the unfortunate insight to major in psychology, which qualifies you for nothing. I had one job offer when I got out of college. Well, I got, I should say, I got drafted a month before college graduation, failed the draft physical, and the job offer that I had was to work for the Red Cross in Saigon, Vietnam. So I went to graduate school. I needed something else to employ, find employment. I don't think my liberal arts education was wasted on me. But higher education is so much more expensive today. I think parents need to be much more deliberate in their thinking in terms of the financial commitment that it takes and what are, are the what are the capabilities of the student? I, mean, I don't think it's status necessarily that you need to go to college. Who's going to ask you after a certain amount of employment? But do they work well with their hands? I've told you about a former student of mine who was probably the brightest kid I ever had in, in, in my years at Creighton. Great with his hands. He told me when he graduated undergraduate, he had uh, he sold all of the audio equipment that he he had made that he rented out to bands, and he sold it for fifty thousand dollars. This was probably in the mid eighties. He went on to a very lucrative career, international business, traveled the world, did all kinds of fancy things, highly lucrative things, and then at age sixty, he said. I'm done. And what's he doing now? He's flipping houses, but he does all the work himself, from the sheetrock to the plumbing to the electricity to tearing out walls to rebuilding, etc. And I said, so what, what happened along the way? And he said, do you remember what you told me in class? He said, do what you love. He said, I didn't listen to you. Now I'm listening to you. So it's kind of gratifying that students come back 40 years later or whatever and say, yeah, you did something, you said something important, but I didn't listen for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, He's doing what he loves. He's doing what he always loved. He just felt family pressure, et cetera. And frankly, he was so bright he could do with his hands and his mind too. I, I encourage parents who ask me, to really consider what what's this, what is higher education going to give their their child, mm-hmm. and if they struggle with an answer, then maybe what they do is should do is is back off and and look at a bigger picture. What what does the child want to do, and what will enable him or her to get there? I think there's a lot of emphasis now in career planning in higher ed, which there wasn't when I went through. Mm -hmm. But also I know that uh, higher education institutions have a vested interest in retaining the student, Mm -hmm. a financial uh, interest. So they're not going to discourage the student from leaving. Simple fact. So is that the best place to get advice? I don't know. I, I hope high school guidance counselors, whatever, provide some information, but I, I think it's important to ask kids, what do you love? What do you see yourself doing? I like the idea of where, where are you going to be in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? And where, get them to be very specific, geographically where, mm-hmm. and then what are they doing? And what are they doing that makes them really happy? Mm-hmm. You know, you may get an occasional kid that says, I'm, I'm sleeping. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that says something about motivation. Right. I see a bigger role for community colleges that are supposed to be sensitive to employment needs in the community, but also that provide foundational education, math, the cognitive skills that are necessary for employment, let alone the hands-on skills. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. So I, I can't say 100% of kids need to go to college yeah. to have a comfortable life. Mm-hmm. And to build on that, I, I, I'd i agree with what you've shared. I think an element of do what you love is is important. And then to also try to figure out, like, where are my gifts and talents? Right. And how does that align with what I love and how I could make a living? Because I think that all of us, if we if we can find find work, meaningful work that we feel like we have the ability to do what we do best on a daily basis, or ninety percent of the time, or you know a fairly high percentage of the time, we're going to be much more fulfilled, and it's not going to be just a job. And unfortunately, I I sometimes talk to people who, I mean, they I remember the my first teaching job. I met a met a teacher. Asked him about teaching there, and he said, eight years. And I said, what do you mean, eight years? And he said, eight years till I can retire. I'm counting the days. And I thought that must be a really miserable <laughs> existence to be counting down the days for eight years. Yeah, I, I would also say what we love may change over time, and that we would, should be sensitive to what is fulfilling and what is not. A teacher, if if he or she breaks down what they can do, what their skills are, those are translatable into other occupations, mm-hmm. just as any other skilled individual, educated individual, has has abilities that that are transferable. So that if you burn out in teaching, if you no longer love teaching, there are other things to do mm-hmm. that may be fulfilling. Mm-hmm. If that person has eight more years, I would hope that there's something else in their life that is fulfilling, or maybe at the end of eight years they're dead, mm-hmm. literally or figuratively, because they have simply spent their mental and physical health. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that takes a incredible toll on people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I loved higher education because I got to do lots of things. Creighton was wonderful to me in that roughly for the first twenty or so years, I did something different every five years, mm-hmm. and and I saw it as a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, how much did I work? Well, I didn't know what work was because I was having fun. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, I know a lot of individuals who are in higher education that are, are just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. It's a job, eight to five. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. It's mm-hmm. really sad. And it's not good for the students that, that sure. they're teaching. Right. I know I've always been fortunate, like you talked about, my my interests have changed and the types of roles I've had. But thankfully, I've always had work that I found meaningful and that Sometimes there's a, a saying about, do you work to live or do you live to work? And I think there are a lot of people that only work to live. You know, they they work to make what they need to pay their bills, and but their real fulfillment is found outside of work. And I think it's I think it's much more satisfying as a, in terms of our life if we can find work that's meaningful and then have meaning outside of work. Right. Oh, I agree. Especially for mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that growing up, you, you had a lot of like piece of it, uh, pieces of advice that you give me. And I mentioned one on the podcast of a while back, like about keeping options open and creating as many options for yourself as possible. What do you think is one of your favorite pieces of advice either that you've received or you like to give? I think it's always important to act out of love. That was a piece of information that I got in a religion class in college. I mean, it kind of made it succinct. I like creating options. Those are the biggies. More recently, I have become interested in the idea of basing what I say on fact, evidence, and I think that's increasingly important for credibility. And I'm out of an age where, you know, if if I don't I don't agree with something, 
I'll let people know or I'll turn around and walk away. I don't, I, I don't have a lot of patience to endure when a situation is uncomfortable. I know at my age, I, I have much less time ahead of me than I had behind me um, unless something absolutely miraculous happens. So I think make the best of every day, but don't push yourself so hard that you don't, you don't see the, f- the flowers and, and, and the scenery around you that you're, you're so focused on, a, on an end goal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's about mental health. Sure. So as you've transitioned to retirement, you, you worked into your 70s. In some ways, I was almost surprised that you would ever retire just because I think you enjoy the work, but you seem to have enjoyed retirement too now. And what do you think has been kind of the, first of all, does that really, is that accurate? And then also, what do you think's helped you in that transition to retirement? I retired at 73, primarily, well, for two reasons. One, I wanted more freedom than I had. And two, I'm a hopeless extrovert. And my teaching load had gone all online, and I just missed relating to students on a daily basis, face to face. So I, your mother and I wanted to travel. Strangely enough, we talk about all the evils of COVID, but strangely enough, I think COVID helped me with my retirement. Mm-hmm. I retired in December of nineteen. By March, everything had shut down. And your mother and I were together all the time. I had to find things to do. Not that I ever lacked things. As an only child, I, one of the gifts I have is I can entertain myself. So I, help, I think that helped. And, but always with an eye toward who can I help? What can I do? What can, I, what can be fun? Um, I found a delightful volunteer position at a local library helping seniors senior citizens with technology challenges. And I found a group of people, uh, fellow volunteers, who are enjoyable to be with. I love the collective brain uh, as we approach solving problems for older folks. I have gotten involved with a school and a person at at a school. The, The individual is a former student. Technology got away from them. They just did not keep up, and they've needed help with organizing data, with presenting data, etc. cetera. Um, that's been fun. I like to be outdoors, and I volunteer at a local wetlands sanctuary. Not as much as I would like, but they don't have the, the students to come and need tours. Maybe that will change. I'm having fun. Mm-hmm. I miss, I have to say, I miss the work environment, the people, the students. Mm-hmm. Some students are kind enough to keep up with me, and and that's a joy. But I'm also having fun. I know this is change in life. Mm-hmm. The university has changed sufficiently that I don't think I have the personality to, to be there. Mm-hmm. The regimentation is is just different than it used to be. Right. So life's good. Yeah, good, good. What What are you excited about? Maybe a final question. What are you excited about, either personally, professionally, in the world, community? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is politics and current events. I like to keep up. I don't drink coffee, so I, I listen to the news every morning. That elevates my blood pressure and gets me started. Mm-hmm. Um I'm interested in becoming a better photographer. I am interested in seeing more of the world. Your mother and I would like to visit more uh, national parks. We enjoy being in the car together. I like to listen to fiction. I like to read fiction. I just it's it's hard for me to boil down what I'm most excited about because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's there's always something to new to pursue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I find it really rewarding. If I see a book, I get out my cell phone, tune into the Omaha Public Library, find the book, put it on hold or put it on reserve 
whatever, so I can quickly get to that. I'm excited about my favorite season is fall, so we're almost there, mm-hmm. and I'm excited to do that. And I like winter. Some people say that the winter in Nebraska is it's it's almost monochromatic. It's browns and white from snow. It, it's dull, but I find it beautiful, mm-hmm. and I like to to make photographs mm-hmm. of that. As you know, your mother and I have ten grandchildren. I'm so excited about following the progress of each one of those mm-hmm. individuals. They are individuals. The oldest is a junior in high school, and um, what's she going to do mm-hmm. after high school? Her parents are sweating the cost, and I'm trying to help them relax and look at look at the facts before they get too excited. Mm-hmm. So, lots of things. Mm-hmm. Plus, during COVID, your mother and I committed to ten mile, or five miles a day um, on the pavement, and we've kept it up pretty much. Yeah. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Staying in shape, and yeah, relatively so. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dad, thank you for being on the Leadership and Strategy podcast. It's been great having this conversation. Maybe we can do uh, part two sometime. And uh, thanks for all your love and support. Uh, uh, I love you, and and I've, I've enjoyed this. This is good. Maybe I'll do my own, too. All right. Well, I'd be happy to help. So, all right. Thank thanks, you. Dad. Bye. To learn more about Dr. Tad Dickel and the T.A. Dickel Group, please visit tadickel.com. Thank you for joining us.